Well, this morning, I want to direct your attention to some very interesting photographs that we'll have uh, for you to enjoy. I want to begin with uh, Mount Everest. How many of you have ever been to Mount Everest? That's what I thought. <laughs> I, I have to tell you that I have this very odd fascination with mountain climbing. I love to watch mountain climbing movies. I love to read documentaries. Some of you are familiar with John Krakauer, who wrote uh, Into Thin Air. He's from Seattle. Um, You couldn't pay me enough to climb a mountain like this. This is a mountain that reaches 29,035 feet, the tallest peak in all the world. Then I want to have you look at something. I'm sure you have all seen it. Many of you have been on it or in it. And that is uh, one of the great landmarks in the city of Seattle, uh, the Space Needle. How many of you have been in the Space Needle or on the Space Needle or to the top of the Space Needle? For me, my knees begin to shake when I go to the top of the Space Needle. The observation deck that most of you have had a chance to um, uh, ride to sits at 520 feet. I want you to remember 520 feet. How many of you would say, that is a long ways up? I mean, 520 feet. It's very interesting. I discovered that when the Space Needle was built in 1962... It was the tallest building west of the Mississippi River, 520 feet. Now, move with me from Seattle all the way to the Middle East, and I want you to take a look at what is now the tallest man-made structure in the world, the Khalifa Tower. And it's, it's a little bit difficult. If you've seen the, one of the Mission Impossible movies, you remember that Tom Cruise had some fun uh, dangling off of this particular structure. Now, how, how tall was the Space Needle? 520 feet. And we've established that it's a long ways up. This tower, brace yourselves, 2,722 feet. That's a tower you will not me, see me making my way to the top anytime soon. And then a, a photograph that I discovered that may not impress you as much as this tower, but it is impressive nonetheless, and that is the Amazon River. The Amazon River, as you know, is the world's longest river by discharge of water in all the world. And then some of you may be familiar with this, this last photograph. This is a photograph of Dr. Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking uh, contracted a, a very uh, disabil- disabilitating disease in his uh, younger years. But even in this condition, he has been known and is still considered to be one of the most, if not the most, smartest men in the world. One of the highest IQs of any living person. As you think about Mount Everest and the Space Needle and the Tower in the Middle East, the Amazon River, Dr. Hawking, you recognize that there are various ways that we measure qualities of people and quantities. We measure with height. We measure with length, we measure with distance and mass and gallons and IQ, etc., etc. This morning as we approach our topic of God, 
When it comes to God, there is something very, very important that we need to come to grips with. And I'm convinced that many people, even in the evangelical church, have failed to remember this reality. This is what we need to come to grips with. We cannot measure God. It is literally impossible to measure God. Last night I was talking with a friend of mine who's here this morning. And he asked me a, a very good question. He said, what's, what's on tap for the sermon tomorrow, Pastor? And I told him about the three attributes that we will be learning about. And then I said something. And you're going to remember me saying this to you. I said, it's, it's just going to be a very basic sermon on these three attributes. And we finished our conversation. I went home. And I got to reviewing my notes last night. And here's the thought that crossed my mind. That might have been one of the dumbest things I have ever said in my whole life. It's going to be a very basic message on the omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience of God. Are you kidding me? It's going to be real basic. Listen, when we talk about God, we're talking about an infinite, eternal, almighty God. A God who is holy, holy, holy. And what I did while my motives were, were good and pure, what I did is I, I wanted to bring God down just a little bit more so we would all be comfortable with him. And wouldn't you agree that that is, is one of the great deficiencies in the church? Is we have Christian writers, we have Christian theologians, we have pastors who want to make God easier to understand. We want a God who, who we can approach uh, without being afraid of him. We don't want a God who is holy, holy, holy. We want a God who is more like us. And that's why some of the recent books have become so very popular. Because God is so like us. Here's what we remember from weeks in the past. God is the creator. We are the creature. The word of God says we cannot measure him. Romans 11 that we've looked at several times in the scriptures says that for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God's word describes in vivid detail what we know about this immeasurable God. First Kings chapter eight, verse 27 says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Can you imagine that? This is a God who is so big. We, we cannot possibly wrap our, our minds around him. Second Chronicles chapter 2 says, But who is able to build him a house since heaven and even highest heaven cannot contain him? Jeremiah twenty three twenty four says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Now here's a mind-blowing reality that I want you to wrestle with by way of introduction. And that is that we will never, never, never know all there is to know about God. And you might be tempted to do as I did as a young seminarian. When I had a professor utter those words, I sat there as a 24-year-old a seminarian. And I thought to myself, I knew my theology pretty well. And uh, Professor so-and-so, um, one day I will have a glorified body. Therefore... 
I will come to the end of God. And it didn't take too many seconds for me to realize the futility of that thought. We will never know all there is to know about God. Because even as creatures with glorified bodies, we will still remain creatures. We will be finite. God is infinite. He is the creator. We are the creature. Jonathan Edwards said a couple hundred years ago, Therefore, their knowledge, and he speaks of the saints, you and I, their knowledge will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge, doubtless their holiness. For as they increase in the knowledge of God and the works of God, the more they will see his excellency, the more they will love him, the more they will love God, the more they delight and happiness they will have in him. What Edwards is saying is we will never come to an end of the knowledge of God. We will grow to love him more and more and more. It it is something that we and in our as our status as creatures, as we sit in these pews this morning, we simply can't understand it. Why? Because everything we have in this life, everything we purchase in this life comes to a crescendo. You think about the car that you purchase. You save and save and save and you purchase your car and you smell the wonderful leather seats and you blast the stereo as loud as you can and you you play with the electronic windows and you've got gadgets galore and you ride it around and no woman would ever do this. This is a guy thing, right? You put the window down and put your elbow out and you're really cool, right? Women are far too refined to do something like that. But the guys, oh boy, we've got it all together, don't we? But there comes a day when it wasn't as fascinating as we once thought. And then what do we do? We want a new car. We want a new car. You see, everything must come to an end. And our satisfaction is peaked in everything we purchase and everything we do in life. When it comes to God, there is no end of God. We will not only grow in our knowledge of the infinite God, we will grow in our love for all eternity. And so if you have the thought that I have when I was a young boy, that in heaven it just seems so boring... Remove that thought from your mind because we will work in heaven. We will play in heaven. We will eat in heaven. We will worship in heaven. We will enjoy the glory of God more and more and more and more unto all eternity. It's an absolutely unbelievable thought. Well, this morning, if you have come, if you have arrived at Christ Fellowship as a guest, you have come at precisely the right moment for we are in the middle of a study on the attributes of God that we have entitled God of wonders and we have learned that the most important thing about you is what you think about God the most important thing about you is what you think about God J.I. Packer has written that disregarding the study of God if you do that you will sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as if there were no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you this way you waste your life and lose your soul here's what Packer wants us to understand if learning about God 
if studying about God, if worshiping God is of little consequence to you, you will, leave a, you will lead a boring, secluded, worthless life. And so thinking about and contemplating God this morning and for our whole life is of monumental importance. Thus far, we have learned that God is the most important being in the universe. He's the most important being in the universe. And we began our series by, by uncovering three principles. You might call this the ABCs of theology. The A is always distinguished between the creator and the creature. And you say, Pastor, I have heard that in almost every sermon. In fact, in personal conversations with you, you even say it. Well, you will continue to hear this because what I see in the church and what I see in the culture that we are a part of is this blurring between the creator and the creature. And so point number one, the A and the ABCs of theology always distinguish between the creator and the creature. Secondly, the B and the ABCs of theology banish, banish idolatrous thoughts about God. Get rid of them. If you have come this morning, you are cherishing a, a, a thought about God that is not in the word of God. Today is the day to chuck it, to, to get rid of that notion. I just read on the internet a post. It was a, to a friend of a friend of mine who said, can't we just agree to disagree on God's relationship to people and how he interacts with them? And the conversation had to do with his knowledge. Most notably, his omniscience, which we'll look at here in just a minute. And the answer to the question is no. We cannot agree to disagree because the word of God, as we will discover in a moment, tells us in no uncertain terms that God has comprehensive knowledge about everything past, present, and future. Letter C in the ABCs of theology is we must commit, we must commit to thinking biblically about God. Pastor, it doesn't make me feel comfortable when I hear that God is a God of wrath. It doesn't make me comfortable to think that God is a God of justice. It doesn't make me comfortable when I think about the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me say to remind you that if you're here and, and you're uncomfortable with the doctrine of the Trinity, that's one thing. If you don't understand it, that's another thing. But if you reject the doctrine of the Trinity... You will lose your soul for the doctrine of the Trinity is at the heart of who God is. We've also learned some other lessons. We've re we've learned that God decrees everything that comes to pass. We've learned that God finds his existence in himself, that he is the God of a seity, that he is a God of immutability. That is, he doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His plans don't change. God is immutable. We've learned in recent weeks that God is infinite, that God is eternal. And today I want to move you just a bit further in our study on the doctrine of God by looking at three more attributes, attributes that will have a great significant meaning in your life. Our goal is to uh, skim the rock over the pond, if you will. This will not be a comprehensive study of these attributes, but my prayer is this morning that as we learn about God, that our understanding of God will deepen, that our worship of God will grow, and that our love for a holy God will reach new heights in our relationship with him. 
I want to begin by looking at the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. The Bible, once again, says in no uncertain terms that our God is omniscient. And when we consider the omniscience of God, when we affirm the omniscience of God, we say in the first person, we say this, God, you know everything. And by the way, the way I have framed these statements for the three attributes would be ways that you can teach them to your young children. When you teach them about the omniscience of God, teach your children to affirm this statement. God, you know everything. Wayne Grudem has said, quote, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act, close quote. Well, there's five observations I want to make about the omniscience of God. Number one, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And while you're turning there, just as a footnote, if you're curious and you're wondering, the approach in this study will be different than most studies we do. Most studies we will open a book of the Bible like we did in Galatians, like we did in Jonah, like we did in Titus. We'll go to a book in the Bible and we will do an exposition verse by verse of that particular book. This particular study, if you um, have come to the point of realizing this, will be a topical study. where We'll look at a, a whole host of scriptures and so it's different than our strategy in days past. First, look with me at Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The first thing I want you to see, the first observation about the omniscience of God is that God knows everything about me. And God knows everything about you. And that is no small task. I think you would agree. If you're like me, you have difficulty remembering what you had for lunch yesterday. How many of you have ever come to Christ Fellowship and you go to shake hands with someone and you draw a blank? Please, someone raise your hand because, oh, thank goodness. And as I was sharing with a friend of mine a few minutes ago, you know, if, if it's a guy, if it's a, if especially a teenager, you know, if it's a teenager or even a young man, you're going to be, hey, dude, how's it going, right? But with little kids or with a woman, for instance, that's not good to call him dude, right? That's just not cool. And it's just, I'm glad I'm not the only one that has a mental block from time to time. Okay, I confess that's not all the time. It's just like, where is my memory going? With God, God's knowledge is perfect. He knows all about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions. He knows your motivations. This passage says that before you even utter a sentence, he knows exactly what you will say. Number two, would you go over with me a few pages to Psalm uh, chapter 147. Psalm 147. And look with me for a moment at verses 4 and 5. Here the psalmist says in 147 verses 4 and 5 that the God determines the number of the stars. 
He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. What's fascinating about this scripture is really we see something about the the power of God that we'll look at in a, in a few minutes, the omnipotent, omnipotence of God, but we also see this. We see that God knows everything about the universe because his understanding is limitless. He literally knows everything about the universe that he has created. By the way, with the word of his mouth, his understanding is limitless. Number three, I want you to see that God knows everything that I do. And since he knows everything that I do, he also knows everything that you do. Job chapter 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. Number four, please see that God knows everything perfectly. There is absolutely nothing that takes God by surprise. Job 37, 16 says, Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Perfect in knowledge. Finally, I want you to see as a a fifth uh, statement concerning the omniscience of God, that God has comprehensive knowledge about the free actions of people. God has comprehensive knowledge about the free acts of people. And this is admittedly where some people get a little bit hung up. And the argument goes something like this. If God knows what I will do tomorrow, that means that I am not free to perform that activity without God being involved some way in some form. And that's exactly the truth. And this is the sentence to remember, and this is worth writing down and worth remembering, that free acts, free choices are foreordained. Free choices are foreordained. Every time I make a move, every time I use my hands, every time I use my feet, every time I make a decision, every choice I make in life is foreordained by God. Now, books have been written to try to refute that understanding of the relationship between God and the free will of the creature. But let me be very simple this morning. Let me just tell you that if free acts are not foreordained, if free acts are not foreordained, then God is not omniscient. And if God is not omniscient, God is not God. And if God is not God, I would argue, then we have no business worshiping this particular being or individual. Remember that free acts are foreordained, that God has comprehensive knowledge about all of our free actions. Louis Burkhoff, a theologian in the middle of the 20th century, said it this way, God has decreed all things. And he has decreed them with their causes and conditions in the exact order in which they come to pass. Once again, free acts are foreordained. I want to ask this morning, have you come to the place in your life where you have literally hit the brick wall? You're at a place in your life where you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. It might have to do with your job or your career. It might have to do with relationships. It might have to do with a marriage. I want you to remember this this morning. 
and I trust this encourages you, that God's knowledge in the events in your life are absolutely comprehensive. Nothing takes God by surprise. And while you may feel out of control, you may feel like your life is spinning out of control. Remember that God is never spinning out of control. He knows everything about you and he knows it perfectly. And he is sufficient to meet all your needs. And so can we confess together this morning, we worship and serve an omniscient God who is perfect in knowledge. Would you look at the second attribute with me? And that is the idea that God is omnipresent. That he's omnipresent. If if you were to teach this attribute, if you were to help your young child understand this attribute, you would put it this way. God, you are everywhere. You are everywhere. One theologian says it like this. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space within his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. That's quite a mouthful. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space within his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. Would you go back with me to Psalm chapter 139? I want to continue on in Psalm 139 and pick up where we left off at verse 7. Where there is this stunning statement concerning the omnipresence of God. And while you're turning there, know this, that we will need to make some clarifying statements about the omnipresence of God. Because it's a doctrine that can lead us in a direction that we should never go if we're not very careful. So verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be the night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for the darkness is light to you. The word of God is very clear that God is a spirit He is a spirit. Therefore, he is not limited or bound by time or space. Number two, I want you to see that God sees everything. He sees everything because he is everywhere. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now, the third statement I want to make is one of those clarifying statements that guards us from theological error. And I would urge you, I would even plead with you this morning to pay close attention at this point, because this is where so many people have gone astray in their Christian lives. And this is something to be on the lookout for in your conversations with people. Number three is that God is not a part of of creation. God is not a part of creation. So much popular literature with the rise of the new age movement so many years ago and even Christian books are they they view God as being a part of creation. 
We will see next week the very important truth that God is, and the men know that when I do this, it means God is transcendent. We will look at the transcendence of God, that He is over and above His creation. We will also learn next week that God is imminent, that He is intimately involved with His creation, and to keep these two attributes in balance will protect the so-called creator-creation distinction. Very important. Number four, I want us to see that God is present as we talk about the omnipresence of God. God is, God is present in different ways and in different places. This bleeds into the, the doctrine that theologians have labeled the providence of God. But I want you to see as we talk about God's omnipresence that he is there to, 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 uh, to bless us to begin with. God may be present to bless. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So remember, when we talk about the the omnipresence of God, one of the ways He is omnipresent is He finds great delight in blessing His people. The second way is this. He may be present to sustain He's not only there to, to bless us, he is present to sustain us. Colossians chapter 1 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. And so God may be present to bless us, he may be present to sustain us, but he also may be present to punish, to punish In the book of Habakkuk, we read these words. For behold, Habakkuk God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize the dwellings that are not their own. They are the dreaded and fearsome ones. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Here's one of the big lessons in the book of Habakkuk. That God, as a God who is omnipresent, will use, he will even use an evil nation like the Chaldean like the Babylonian armies, to judge his people. And so God is present to judge. I want to ask this question by way of application. Have you ever been in a situation, and we talked about this in Veritas this morning, where you tried to hide from God? Where you became like your father Adam, where you committed a sin, And you fill in the blank. It's that secret sin that you have committed and you have hidden that not only from all the loved ones in your life, but you have sought to hide that sin from God. If you have done that, if you are like your father Adam, if you are like Jonah who tried to hide his his predisposition against God, remember this. Remember this, God is everywhere. There is no place that you can go that God is not present. He is the omnipresent God. 
What does it reveal about a person's concept of God if they actually think they can hide from him? That's something that might be a good discussion uh, for you to have at, at lunch or dinner today. What does it reveal about the heart of a man or a woman who actually thinks that they can hide from God? What does it reveal about the heart of a man who thinks he can drive to Seattle and go to First Avenue and go to a porn house and think that God doesn't know about it? What does it reveal about the heart of a young person who thinks he can steal $50 off off mom's kitchen cabinet and stick it in his wallet and no one will ever find out about it? It reveals that you don't think very highly about the, the God who is omnipresent. Remember this, we serve, as the scriptures proclaim, a God who is absolutely omnipresent. There's a third attribute I want to share with you, and that is that God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. And that's exactly the way we can teach this to our children. That is, we make this stunning affirmation. God is all-powerful. Psalm 24, 8 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Now, I alluded to this several weeks ago. But I want to stress this once again, because you may have had teachers, especially when you were children, who had a a deep and abiding passion to teach you about the all-powerful God, to teach you that God is omnipotent. And I can, I can say to you, I can say that each one of those teachers had the right motivation to teach you that God is all-powerful. But I would also submit to you that many of us have been taught incorrectly. And here's the reason why. One theologian says the definition of omnipotence is this. And by the way, this is the best definition I have ever heard on the attribute of omnipotence. He says, God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. When we say that God is omnipotent, we confess that God is able to do all his holy will. That is not the definition I heard in Sunday school. Here's the definition I heard in Sunday school. Boys and girls, God is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. Teacher, teacher, what does that mean? That means God can do anything. And that's where the teacher went astray. It is not true to say that God can do anything. In describing his attribute of being omnipotent, let me explain. He cannot do anything that would deny his character. He cannot do anything that would deny his character. God cannot sin. And this is a topic for a later discussion in the area of the doctrine of Christ. It's an ongoing discussion among theologians. And that is, would it be possible for Jesus to sin? That's one that you might think about in the days ahead. And the short answer to the question is a thousand times no. It would not be possible for Jesus to sin. You say, what about the scripture says that he was was tempted and always as we are, yet without sin. What we do is we take both statements, we take both assertions and we believe them. That he was, on the one hand, he was tempted and always as we are, yet without sin. And what we need to wrestle with is this. If Jesus could sin, what are the implications of that? 
And let me be as, as, as basic and simple as I know how to be. If Jesus sinned, I would go to hell. If Jesus committed one sin, we all would go to hell for all eternity. To say that God is omnipotent does not mean that he can do anything. There's something else he can't do. He can't destroy himself. God cannot destroy himself. God cannot create another God. And what people like to do with these assertions is they like to use uh, what I call a weasel language. They say things like this. Well, God could destroy himself, but he chooses not to. God could worship another God, but he chooses not to. That's called weasel language. God cannot worship another God. God cannot destroy himself. And here's a big one from the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews. God does not have the ability to tell a lie. God can't lie. He's, it's simply not a part of his being. Look at number two, concerning the omnipotence of God, omnipotence of God, that God's power rules over all of creation. Would you turn with me to Psalm 29, Psalm chapter 29, and I I just want to read the whole chapter because it's a beautiful summary of the omnipotence of God, Psalm chapter 29. King David says, ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters. Last night. My son Nathan and I watched a movie that was put out by a Lutheran organization, surprise, surprise, called Luther. Some of you have seen it. And the opening scene shows Martin Luther, an unconverted individual, young man who is on a journey, and he is faced with this thunderstorm. And the way the authors of the film describe this activity that Luther's engaged in is he hits the floor he hits the ground his face hits the mud and he cries out to god actually he cries out saint anne the patron saint of the day save me and i will be, become a monk luther actually followed through on that promise and became a a rather famous augustinian monk and then turned reformer But I think of what happened here in verse 5 is what Luther experienced. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He experienced the power of God. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. Notice this statement of omnipotence. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give his people strength. And may the Lord bless his people with peace. 
when we refer to God's power in creation, it reminds us of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which I will be happy to preach at least one message on later in this series. Number three, would you see that God's power rules over his people and he gives them strength? God rules over his people, and in that ruling process, he gives his people strength. Psalm chapter 38, verse 35, says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel, for he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Number four, I want you to see as we have already discovered that God's power preserves all things. God not only created all things by the word of his power, God sustains and governs all things by the word of his power. And then finally, notice with me that God's power rules comprehensively over the scope of the entire universe. The same God who created all things with the word The same God who rules over creation. I want you to see the context this morning. The God who created all things. The God who sustains all things. The same God who rules over his people and powerfully preserves all things. This is the God who is there for you. The God who created and sustains all things is there in power to protect you and to preserve you. Or as Psalm 29 says, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. I want you to see this morning that the way we approach God is of utmost consequence. It is vitally important. As Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And while most evangelicals I have found over the years would maintain everything that we have said thus far, that God is omniscient, that God is omnipresent, that God is omnipotent, what I am seeing more and more is that people in the church are lowering God. They are limiting God. They are boxing God in. They are creating a God In their own image. And so what we see this morning, it's very easy with the scriptures to confess the omnipresence, the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. But even in that doctrinal framework, we can lower God. We can minimize God. And I did it last night when I said to my friend, it's going to be real basic. It's going to be intense. It's going to be spine tingling. It's going to be head shattering. It's going to be heart enlarging because we're going to talk about three attributes that will literally shake you off the face of the earth. This is the great God of the universe. You see, the God we worship and adore adore this morning has the power to put your relationship back together that is broken. God is has the power to put your marriage back together, to restore it. The God that we worship and adore can reach down and help you with your anxiety and your fear. Do you know how many people I hear about on an ongoing basis, not only at Christ Fellowship, but just in culture generally, people that struggle with fear, 
with anxiety, with loneliness. Our God has the power to reach down and help you with those things. The God we worship and adore can crush the sinful anger in your life. You say, Pastor, you have no idea. The wives might say this, you have no idea what my husband is like. He's so nice at church, but you get him alone. You would never believe it. Guess what? God, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, he has the power to break that sinful anger. The God that we worship and adore this morning can comfort you in your time of need. He can strengthen you during your time of adversity. And he will stand with you when you have no more strength to stand. Most important, the God that we worship and adore has the power to break what? The power of sin and the penalty of sin. And it all happens through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My question this morning is this, as we conclude on a, a gospel high note, is are you trusting the true God of the Bible? The God who is omniscient, who knows all things, the God who is omnipresent, the God who is everywhere at the same time, but not to be confused with the creation, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is able to do everything within the scope of his holy will. This is the good news, that Jesus Christ died a death that I deserved. That is why my constant refrain when someone asks how I'm doing is better than I deserve. And I hope it's your refrain as well. I hope it's your response because what do we deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus Christ bore that wrath for his people. The gospel says this, Jesus died. The God man died a, a horrific death on that cruel cross. Three days later, he was miraculously raised from the dead by God the Father. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, the gospel tells us, will receive eternal life. They will receive the forgiveness of sins. And I trust that as we've walked this journey together for almost four years together now, can you believe it? I trust that you, you are not getting tired of hearing the gospel. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for 40, 50, 60 plus years. I pray that every time you hear the gospel, it will get even more invigorating, more exciting. Because you remember, I deserve hell. And once again, I hear the message that Jesus bore the wrath of God on Calvary's tree. And he did it first and foremost for the glory of God. But he also did it for me because he loves me with an everlasting love. He loves me with an infinite love. And so when I feel bad about myself, I should remember the God of the universe sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that I would have eternal life, so that I would have new life, so that the power of sin would be broken, so that the penalty of sin would be broken, and so that one day the presence of sin would no longer be a part of my life as I stand together with Jesus in a glorified body and worship him for all eternity on the new earth. I want to ask this morning, have you... Have you banked all your hope exclusively in Jesus? And 
one day after we celebrated the Protestant Reformation, I have to add this. Are you trying to earn your salvation? Like Luther, for so many days, tried to earn his salvation. He slept outside in the cold. He scrubbed the floor. He said that if anyone got to heaven by being a monk, certainly it was I. He was the monk of all monks. But he learned this, the just shall live by faith and faith alone. And the Protestant Reformation broke loose. And we stand as recipients now of what Luther did 498 years ago. And all Luther did was to uncover. He unearthed the truth that has existed for all eternity, that God loves sinners. And he sent Jesus to die in their place. Will you trust in him today? Let's pray together. Father, we approach you as the great God, the God who knows all things, the God who is everywhere, yet not confused with the creation, the God who is omnipotent, the one who can accomplish everything within the scope of your holy will. Forgive us, God, for the times when we have minimized you. Forgive us for the times when we have placed you into a box. Forgive us for the times when we have sought to create you in our own image. God, may you turn our attention to the scriptures where we would see a a clear and compelling portrait of who you are. We uh, worship you in spirit and in truth. And now as we come to the table and remember what Jesus Christ accomplished, not only in his death, but also in his life, we thank you for that gospel. We, out of obedience, remember uh, the life, the ministry, the 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 bodily death and the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we, we celebrate these great realities. We worship together as the body of Christ. We pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Let me encourage you this morning to be in the habit of not minimizing God. Rather, let's maximize God. Instead of marginalizing God, let's, let's worship him in all his majesty and, and watch what he will do here in this house full of faith at Christ Fellowship. Word of God says, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. Will you join me in final closing word of prayer? Father, once again, we uh, accept, we affirm what is written in the Scripture about uh, your character about your essence. God, we recognize that you are all-knowing, that you are all-powerful, that you are everywhere, yet never being confused with the creation. Lord, help us to, to maximize you, to, um, to come to you and, and magnify you, for you are the majestic God over all the earth. God, I pray that you would uh, show your kindness to Christ fellowship, that you would be Uh, healing bodies in need of healing, that you would be healing relationships that have gone asunder. I pray that you would uh, strengthen us according to the riches of your grace. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch down this morning and you would would reach into hearts, that you would change a a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that you would uh, save someone on this day as we celebrate together. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the great freedom. Thank you for the great victory that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. For in his worthy name we pray. Amen.